welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. Today's episode is actually uh, not addiction, and in fact, this is uh, episode one of our COVID-19 series, and this is actually something we're doing in collaboration with the Homeland Security and Emergency Management in Minnesota, and this is going to be a summary of uh, ECHO program that took place today uh, with a number of speakers, and we're going to basically hit all of the high points of that so that those of you who did not make that ECHO Uh, which was about an hour and a half long. We're going to condense that into about 20 minutes, aren't we, Dr. Bell? We sure are, and we're going to do this twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday, that we do have these special echo sessions um, during the day. Uh, This collaboration is with us and the Homeland Security Group and Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians and MHA, Minnesota Hospital Association, Minnesota Medical Association, um, Stratus Health, Stratus Health, and everyone around the state that typically wants to do anything to help people in medicine. So, really, our first speaker today was Chris Ayersman, who is the director of MDH Infectious Disease Epidemiology Prevention and Control Division. She has got a way fancier title than we do. So, she kind of gave the updated clinical summary, stating that the U.S. now has more cases of COVID than anywhere else in the world. Um, this is pretty frightening, especially when you're considering that there's only a few places in our country, Kurt, that have hit that peak yet. Um, that's that's pretty scary. And, you know, New York, are they're almost top three in the whole world already, and that's just New York, small state. Um, so the states with the highest volume are New York and New Jersey, um, totaling together over 100,000 people who've um, been tested um, positive. Minnesota, we have currently 742 confirmed cases ranging in ages from four months to 104 years, which, you know, she did nicely point out that that's probably not going to change that huge range as that pretty much covers the entire lifespan um, of people in Minnesota. The median of all confirmed cases, the age is 47, and it's pretty evenly split between males and females, which is also interesting given that all the studies that we've been reading shows that usually it's two-thirds men more common, but in Minnesota, I guess... Men think they're equal. Mm. Mm. The hospitalized patients have ranged anywhere between the ages of 6 and 98 years old. And as of today, 75 patients are in Minnesota's hospitals with a positive confirmed COVID, with 38 of them in the ICU. Now, one of the things that she was discussing was actually uh, the fact that we've seen a lot more of the community transmission. And, of course, these are people that have not traveled. There's really no other known exposure. And so we know now that there's a lot of this uh, going on. Uh, and and really one of the things that they're really talking about a lot is this congregate living, uh, and that would include shelters, jails, uh, group homes, all these types of places where we get a lot of people living in very uh, very tight quarters. And uh, they're really taking a lot of action in these places, trying to uh, send in their infection control teams and a nurse case manager. They're actually doing uh, telecommunication uh, visits with these to provide guidance on how to uh, prevent more spread. Yeah, and they've really kind of started to look at these areas also, not just in trying to track them and trying to hone in on those, but trying to look at testing just because of the limited testing ability we do have in our state right now. 
really trying to put priority on those um, patients who are ill that live in these congregate living settings, patients who have dialysis that are ill, ill hospital patients, ill healthcare workers, um, patients 65 and older, as that is who is still having the most mortality from this disease, ill first responders, childcare workers. Um, but again, that huge focus on congregate living. They're looking a lot at the differences in time they can get these tests back. You could get a test in 24 hours, but a lot of these commercial labs are taking up to five days. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the masks and the PPEs. And uh, they want to make it really clear that uh, alternative masks uh, that are being used more as source control, uh, these are basically reducing the risk for non-infected people um, in congregate living settings. Again, this is something that when they cough or they sneeze, that, that these these type of masks are going to just kind of control that. So it's kind of like... When you tell your kid to, to cover their nose or cover their mouth when they sneeze or cough, this just kind of helps them out, yeah. right? Yeah, it does. And it's, <laughs> it's currently believed that, uh, you know, typically COVID is coming in, into these congregate settings uh, from staff, obviously, or, or physicians that are rounding in those areas. And obviously, we're I think in those cases, we're looking at nursing homes. Uh, but alternative masks are not an approved form of PPE, and she wanted to make that really clear. Uh, the CDC, of course, recommends PPEs. Uh, for certain situations when we are around patients with known disease. But again, uh, the supply is continuing to be the issue, and I think uh, we all know that. Uh, and of course, in the clinic settings, uh, we're really focusing on the droplet precautions, and I think there's been a lot of discussion around which masks people should be wearing, but at this point, still uh, that focus uh, on droplets. Um, and again, when we're caring for an acutely ill patient, uh, it's that using that approved PPE that's really that N95 is probably what we're going to need with those uh, to decrease that spread uh, to healthcare workers. And of course, in Minnesota right now, healthcare workers are disproportionately tested, but uh, certainly are a high percentage of the cases that have been proven. And again, uh, there was some discussion about what to do with patients or who should be coming into our clinics. And of course, one of the big things is this uh, bringing well childs uh, in, whether you should be doing that. And, and I think there's been a lot of focus on making sure that 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 particular group under the age of one is getting the immunizations uh, so that won't, we don't see an outbreak of another problem. So uh, that's, I think, still going on. Yeah, doctors in my generation might not know how to even recognize chickenpox, let alone some of those other illnesses that are immunized against. We transitioned from Chris Ayersman uh, to Dr. Amanda Nasca, who's actually one of my med school classmates, um, who did her master's at MPH in the University of Minnesota and then got her um, her fellowship in infectious disease out in Providence, Rhode Island, and finally just moved back to Minnesota where she's practicing in Duluth at Essentia Healthcare. She is just a wealth of knowledge, and I could probably listen to her talk all day, even though I probably don't quite understand everything she's saying. Well, I did, but... <laughs> That's because we've read those same articles. But anyway, you know, there's some some speculation if you look back, and it's in some of the articles that she had sent us that, you know, this might have actually been... COVID might have actually started even before that December 8th date that we like to quote 115 days ago. It might have actually been even more in the November um, time period, uh, November 17th, um, you know, and, and trying to figure out where this comes from. COVID's, you know, coronavirus has been around, but did this come from a pig? Does it come from a pangolin? Did it come from a bat? They're trying to look at different hosts and where, where these kind of viruses started from. I think they're picking on the pig. I think they're picking on the pig. Pigs and mosquitoes. I mean, I don't know. Pigs are so cute, though. 
Anyway, so COVID itself or the coronavirus, I should say, attaches to the ACE2. So, you know, the angiotensin converting enzymes, which is present in the lungs, kidneys, guts, nasal areas, brain, heart, all the epithelial. So pretty much everywhere on the body. And when we move forward here uh, to the next speaker, we'll, we'll kind of talk about that a little bit more as far as different medication things. But because it can impact so many different areas of the body where this um, this enzyme and this epithelial is, is there can be a lot of different clinical presentations. You know, cough tends to still be one of the higher ones, um, fever, shortness of breath, you know, but not everybody gets a fever. And I think that's, that's one of the key things is there's this... You just don't know. But other things that people notice, uh, loss of smell and taste, uh, GI symptoms that can be brief, nausea, vomiting, some diarrhea, headaches, some encephalopathy now has been noted, but this extreme fatigue, a very rare uh, presentation and a very unique presentation, I should say. I don't know how rare it is because we're not probably testing enough to really know is this burning of the eyes, almost like conjunctivitis or pink eye or allergies. Yeah, um, yeah I actually had two patients that I did on telemed that had come back from a trip, and in fact, both of them complained about the cough, a fever, and they had terrible eye symptoms, which I uh, I had not seen the eye data at that point, but I think uh, retrospectively, uh, they probably had this. Yeah, and um, I guess the one reason why this is such a, um, a contagious illness and why it can, it can spread so fast is there's this, um, this incubation period, if you will, or this... Um, this interval period where patients can be spreading virus for four to five days, even before they even have symptoms. Um, and then just recognizing that not everybody gets symptoms when they get, you know, this virus in them. Um, a lot of asymptomatic spread. Now, she also talked a little bit about the the testing, which, uh, of course, the PCR has had reasonably good sensitivity, she noted, and, and that, in fact, in that first three days, it's actually the sensitivity is relatively good. Uh, unfortunately, once you hit day 14, the sensitivity of the PCR can drop really substantially, almost about 50%. Uh, and so really, it really depends on when you're testing people as to what you're going to find. And it's really difficult to know at what point uh, the incubation period um, is at uh, when you're swabbing. So you really don't know uh, whether you're at a time period where you're going to get a, that better test. Um, now, PCR testing in Minnesota is being done presently at MDH, at Mayo, some commercial labs at Abbott. Uh, and there's also, uh, she talked a little bit about the IgM testing uh, and how that was maybe a little bit more, uh, it's going to be middle, a little bit more useful as time goes on. And I think, I mean, if you think about that, if we're seeing patients and we don't have tests available and the whole push is to keep patients at home and don't come to the ER until you might be hospitalized, you really have no idea um, because, you know, fatigue can happen anywhere at any time. So Yeah, some of the things she talked about, some of the lab, which... Uh, I think probably a lot of people have uh, read about. Uh, of course, the LDH elevation is one of those things that they've been seeing. Procalcitonin hasn't been as helpful, and she talked a little bit about how sometimes with secondary infections you'd see that elevated. Um, she talked a little bit about the CPR elevation and uh, D-dimers sometimes greater than 1,000. CPR elevation. Did I say CPR? You did. Okay. CRP. Man, I... Maybe you were combining the troponin and... CRP and made a CPR. That's probably what I was doing. (laughs) And also uh, the liver enzyme elevations. And and I think one of the things we've all seen, of course, is that uh, in the the literature is this pancytopenia and probably later in the disease that lymphopenia. And so uh, those are things that she thought were very important for people to understand um, uh, for us to uh, really look for. Uh, look, and she talked a little bit about medications as well, and uh, and she talked about some of the ones we've all heard of, the remdesivir, 
easy for me to say, rem, <laughs> remdesivir and, and uh, of course, the hydro, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. And she wanted to really stress to people that still there is not good data and that we can't, although there are being used and sometimes that it's really uh, not something that we have clear uh, uh, clear indications for at this moment. I think she really tried to stress, you know, along with that, just the symptomatic control and more of this you have no other option or if you're 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 kind of grasping straws or if the patient's decompensating then this might be a chance to to kind of hit one of those home because you know like everything else we've noticed whether it's PPE and vents everything's in such short supply you don't want to run the meds out too if if they might be proven beneficial for that certain patient yeah she talked a little bit about the stool studies uh, that's uh, something that's being worked on as far as diagnosis but again i think if she stressed one thing about treatment it was really that still we have to look at this as just uh, treating the symptoms and, and just giving that supportive care. I did like how she said, well, I can name 69 medications that are being studied right now. Yeah, but none of them approved. I can't name 69 medications that are being studied, but that's why she's smarter than I am. Um, we did kind of circle back to that whole droplet and airborne precaution again um, with Dr. Nasca. Again, she did state that majority of it is felt to be droplet, but then airborne, of course, when you have some type of aerosolizing procedure, especially things like the actual procedure of innovating CPAPs, BiPAPs, NEBs, and the question of should you do something like meter dose inhalers instead of NEBs, but then again, you're going to have some shortages with those too, and so it's, it's a lot of trying to weigh the risks and the benefits of all these different options for each individual patient. Um, and then if you are a, pa- a provider providing treatment, uh, any kind of provider providing treatment in a situation where an airborne could happen and N95 is definitely recommended and that there are numerous studies out there that can, that have shown that COVID can live up to three hours aerosolized. And so, you know, something's been in the air and it can stay there for three hours. And then even on surfaces like stainless steel for two days and on plastic for two to three days, just the importance of, you know, really kind of keeping things wiped down and um, not putting your hands on your face. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, you know, one of the things she talked about, too, is some of the studies and how they aerosolized uh, things are, you know, is that extract, can you extrapolate that to, uh, you know, to, to what it what it would be in a normal human? As apparently, they they aerosolized this, putting it on drums, which uh, I was, I found quite interesting, but... In any case, can you extrapolate that to uh, a natural condition? So, and then we had uh, uh, Dr. John Hick and uh, and Joe Helly from uh, Centric Care talking, and uh, uh, maybe you can just give a little. You know, I can tell you about Joe Helly. Joe Helly works as a VP at Strategy at uh, Centric Care. Actually, a, a friend of mine for a long, long time. Uh, and maybe you want to tell us a little about Dr. Hick. Yeah, Dr. Hick um, did medical school at Mayo. At Mayo. Mayo Medical School, easier for me to say, and then did his residency and fellowship all at Hennepin Healthcare, where he is still an ER physician at Hennepin, as well as um, the disaster relief um, kind of coordinator. He's kind of led a lot of these disasters and um, emergency preparedness for Minnesota. So I'm not sure if you lead a disaster, but okay. <laughs> you lead the solution for the disaster. Perfect. Something like that. So, you know, things that they kind of started to talk about um, was back to that whole, once again, Dr. Hick really stressed this whole asymptomatic phase, and this was that whole everybody needs to stay at home because there's so many people out there that can be transmitting um, all these viral particles asymptomatically, 
and that the amount of viral particles in the nasal airways um, and in the airways is way greater than even the SARS epidemic. And then he kind of like Dr. Nasca had said that if you're going to look at one thing as an ER provider, such he like he is, um, and not have that point of care test for COVID, and you see lymphopenia in a person with the classic symptoms, you got to think COVID. And he also touched on the ACE uh, medications. And, and again, uh, he talked a little bit about the fact that there's not really currently enough data for us to decide whether we should continue those or stop those. Felt that, that we should not be changing those medications at this time until we, uh, until we have more information. Uh, and so I think that was uh, really important. Um, and I think that one of the things that he voiced some concern about with, is the patients that are uh, even at younger ages getting cardiomyopathies, and this continues to be uh, a real concern uh, that these patients uh, are really uh, uh, at risk. I think, you know, MDH um, that Dr. Hick had mentioned, Jan Malcolm, the commissioner of MDH, of course, has put out this plea that any time a patient is being admitted, transferred, discharged from any type of a hospital situation, the state is just gathering so much information about these patients, whether they've touched healthcare prior to this hospitalization, to really try to hone in on all these things, especially specific to Minnesota patients. Um, so hopefully in the next few weeks when we keep coming back, we'll have more information for that. Um, as far as what's going on statewide, disaster planning is continuing to evolve. The plan will be transferring stable passion, patients back to more critical access hospitals and the more intensive care needing patients, the innovated, the, the very acute patients out of our critical access hospitals into more of these tertiary hospitals. So kind of this like um, revolving ambulance transfer situation, which I'm not sad about that. Yeah, and basically what he was saying that uh, often if a very ill, critically ill patient is transferred to a tertiary clinic, tertiary uh, hospital, they may be sending you back a case that is less ill uh, to place in your critical access hospital. And that is something they're looking at to keep patients in hospitals as much as possible before they start to use uh, out-of-hospital places to manage patients. And in fact, you talked a little bit about this, doing this in the coalitions. There's eight healthcare coalitions in Minnesota. This has been going on uh, for almost 20 years. And um, and these these will also be involved in in feeding this information to MDH uh, uh, through this interface. So uh, it's something that they really have worked on in evolving these systems uh, for information. I think his his whole emphasis on disaster healthcare is on this space stuff and staff um, thinking outside the box. Like you need to have the space. You need to expand it to surgical centers. You need to go to other outpatient settings. You know, if all else fails, you go into other types of scenarios, whether it's, you know, arenas or what have you, um, to try to utilize. And then staff, you want to utilize as many non-medical people for different cares for these patients. So your healthcare workers who are um, obviously high risk of exposure and getting sick themselves um, can be utilized where they are needed. Um, and then the stuff when you're trying to to look at what are we going to do with vents and what can we do to to maximize the usage of all of this limited supply, different uh, tips and tricks for that. And they're starting to look more closely at those things that they can spread out as the surge starts to happen. Yeah. So there were a lot of questions, and I think some of these things we're going to just kind of end with were, some, were a result of that. Um, one of the questions that was really talked about is whether or not in critical access hospitals, once we run out of uh, uh, negative pressure rooms, whether this type of patient could remain in uh, regular rooms. And at this point, uh, standard rooms are considered uh, okay if that's what you have. Uh, 
Um, they're looking at uh, getting together a universal phone number for Minnesota uh, so that we will have some place to call when we're trying to determine where patients should be placed. And so that's something that's be, being looked at, but will not be implemented until we, uh, some of the metro hospitals and the bigger tertiary hospitals are uh, are filled. I think this goes back to that whole get the very ill to the tertiary and get the ill but not as critical out to outlying states, like one direct transfer number. Not at states. I think you meant hospitals. Hospitals. Um, and so, and, and of course, then you talked a little bit about uh, – you know, obviously, we're trying to get people to make more ventilators and uh, talked about some of the companies that were involved in that. Uh, and the concern the, about the number of ventilators, because uh, this is a patient group that needs to be on ventilators, uh, sometimes for extended period of time. I've seen some uh, data that it's a lot of times over 11 days uh, and often very difficult to wean off. And so uh, un- unlike some of the usual ventilated patients who might need two or three days of ventilation, uh, these Patients are remaining on them for extended times. You know, in our our dream world, we'd have a vaccine available and all these miracle cures. Um, Dr. Hick made it very clear that, you know, yes, that's that's our dream world. And that'll happen someday, maybe, you know, with the vaccine and such not. But um, we got to control it now. Um, And that hoping that if we can kind of match ourselves to what Seattle has done, which a lot of our curves and a lot of our data so far in Minnesota apparently is following a lot of what Seattle Seattle's look like hopefully we can learn from some of their things and maybe flatten ours out um, before we hit critical. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting how uh, Dr. Hick had talked a lot about how they're looking at other states uh, as far as do they have similar similar demographics, uh, have they had similar exposures, what their curves look like, and that's something that uh, their response team is really uh, following and trying to extrapolate what what Minnesota's got uh, in the in the future. So uh, this is going to be an, obviously a evolving story. Uh, this is something we're going to be uh, putting on the podcast every Tuesday and Thursday. And this will be a quick way if you cannot listen to the entire echo uh, that is going to be uh, on online as well. Uh, if you want to do something quicker, uh, you can pull this up and do it. Uh, and let me just mention that uh, the Minnesota Academy of Family Practice is actually hosting all of this information on their website and so to connect to the new one that's coming up on Tuesday, which will be about the trying to give a basically a primer for primary care doctors to learn how to use ventilators, uh, it is we have simplified the whole process. Will be very quick to uh, to get that to get hooked up to that uh, particular talk. Yeah, if you just go to the MAFP Minnesota Academy of Family Physician website, just Google that. It's right there. There's a click to the COVID education, um, and they'll have the link for you to log in. Um, there's some survey monkeys out there. We really want to know what you all want to know so we can bring that to the echo to make sure we're addressing the concerns and needs that especially greater Minnesota has. Um, well, we might not have the same resources that they have in the Twin Cities. Yeah, and actually as of this time for Tuesday's talk, we can only take 1,000 people. Uh, we had 640 signed up for today. There's already 400 signed up for Tuesday. So please, if you are interested in uh, getting set up for that, uh, go to the website. I'm hoping that we can get a link to the podcast as well on the MEFP so that we can uh, make this available very quickly if this is your preferred way to get this information every Tuesday and Thursday. All right. So otherwise, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Thanks.